Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. I'm JP Samard. And today we have an extra special guest. We'd like to welcome Mike Ash on the show. Hi, Mike. Hi, everybody. Uh, Mike, you want to share a few words about yourself? Most people know you, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to re- a refresher nonetheless. All right. So for those who haven't heard of me, I'm Mike Ash. Um, I write a blog called Friday Q&A, which you can find at mikeash.com. And uh, I like to dive into weird and crazy corners of the world of programming in uh, in Apple's technologies. And um, a lot of my posts involve things like uh, disassembling code and, and looking at how compilers and programming languages work. And I uh, like to uh, really get down deep and explore all of that stuff. But Swift has taken all the fun out of that now that it's open source. Uh, well, <laughs> sort of. The uh, Swift code base is pretty big. And I know a lot of people find this very strange, but there are a lot of things where it's actually easier to just pick apart the generated code than to go and find what implements it. Uh, and it's it's a fun tool to have on your belt nonetheless. Um, and really, I, I think the, the way that you've presented it in your Q&A over the years uh, has really been approachable and has introduced other people to the art, the, the, the dark magic of disassembling and trying to understand how things work under the hood. Yeah, there's kind of a lot of mystique to it and people are afraid of it, um, but it's not that bad once you really kind of get past that. Um, people always ask me, you know, how did you, how did you learn all this stuff? You know, what did you do? How did you get so good at it? And it's like, well, I started out by being bad at it for about 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing special about my brain or anything there. It's just a matter of uh, getting into it. Yeah, I've always loved the Friday Q&As. Yeah, they've always been super valuable to me for sure. Yeah, that's great. I, I like, you know, not all of this stuff has a practical aim to it. A lot of the stuff I discuss is really kind of way out there. And um, mm-hmm. some of my posts start off with a huge warning, you know, do not ever use this in practice. Right. But I think even <laughs> for stuff like that, just un- it, getting that deeper understanding of what's going on underneath can really help you in a practical sense, even if it's not directly. Yeah, it's super interesting. Well, like all crafts, you know, knowing your tools and and how your tools work can sometimes make you a better craftsman, even if, you know, you don't necessarily verbatim copy what uh, you're walking through in the Q&A. Um, but I've, I've found that some episodes are, or some posts rather are great to give some of the backgrounds of some of the inner workings to maybe sometimes help like debug some obscure behavior that you're seeing. And then other times it's just nerd snipery at its finest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I get nerd sniped by other people or my own brain or whatever, and then I got to go do it. And of course I need to make other people suffer at, along with me because <laughs> it wouldn't be fair otherwise. So. so welcome to Swift Unwrapped, the nerd snipe edition. That's right. Um, and there's a particular topic that, uh, that we'd like to cover. It's um, by the time you hear this, this comes out, uh, this Q and A should have been out for a few days. Uh, let's talk about how weak references work in Swift 4. Yeah, so weak references have always been like a little hobby of mine. So just for anyone who's not familiar with the term, a weak reference is a reference to an object that does not keep that object alive. And usually it's used to mean something where that reference uh, safely becomes nil when the target object disappears. 
So your typical reference in a program is a strong reference that participates in keeping the object alive, but sometimes you want to refer to an object without affecting its lifetime. This is really common for things like delegates, where you don't want to make retain cycles. Uh, can be really useful for things like image caches, other stuff like that. And uh, it's a really handy technique, and we didn't have that in the Apple world for a long time. Back before ARC came out and we were all doing manual memory management, uh, we didn't have weak references. We had, well, we had non-zeroing weak references. You could make a reference which didn't own the object. And the object would get destroyed, and then you just have a dangling reference, and then you'd crash it unless you arranged everything yourself. So not the best. And, and this is, uh, that that's a essentially what unowned references are in Swift, right? It's pretty close, yeah. The, uh, the okay. difference there, it's not quite the same, because unowned references in Swift, uh, if they target a Swift object, are guaranteed to crash reliably when you access them after the ah. target has been destroyed. In Objective-C, you just had a pointer to stuff, and whatever happened to be there at the time is what you got. So sometimes it would crash. Sometimes there would be a different object which got allocated there. Mm -hmm. And now you'd be talking to that object instead, which was all kinds of fun. This is definitely a case where crashing reliably is preferable to sometimes crashing and sometimes not. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people think crashing is the worst thing your program can do, and it's definitely not. It's, it's I'd say, number three or so on the list of the worst things your program can do. <laughs> Corrupt uh, behind, data is pretty high up there. Yes, corrupting your user's data is, is the worst sin. And behind that sort of a, a special case or more general case of that is, is behaving unpredictably and failing uh, in a way that's you can't easily diagnose. So yeah, that was that was a real pain back in the memory management days, and I got fed up with it and implemented my own uh, zeroing weak reference library, doing all kinds of horrendous things under the hood. In Objective-C? In Objective-C, yes. Okay. So that's uh, MA zeroing weak ref, which is totally obsolete now, and you don't need it. And Ah, uh, yes. I know this one. Yeah. There, there are some times when you make a project and it gets made obsolete and you are just so happy Yeah, <laughs> because it's much better to have this stuff be official. Um, so and that's why Arc, you don't build businesses off of uh, weak reference libraries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be a, a tough call. Not sure how you could monetize that. So uh, yeah, I didn't really try. Silicon um, Valley would find a way. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like Uber, but for weak references. <laughs> so yeah, once Arc came out, uh, Apple had their own weak reference implementation that went along with that. And um, although my library continued to be useful for a little bit because Arc came out with 10.7 and Apple provided compatibility shims so that you could target 10.6. But when you did that, you didn't get weak references. So if you targeted 10.6, you had to forego that and still do the old, old scary way. And so I actually figured out how to write a compatibility shim for the weak reference stuff so that you could continue using that. And it would use MA0ing weak ref on 10.6. And I think it was iOS 4, something like that. Uh, and then when you targeted or when you ran on the more recent versions, it would automatically use Apple's version instead. There's a parallel to be made there since we've talked so much about ABI stability is that once uh, Swift is ABI stable, you might still want to do different things depending on different Swift runtimes. And so if you uh, want to backport like a Swift 6 feature uh, that works with a Swift 5 runtime, you, you might do something similar. Yeah, exactly. There's there's a lot of possibilities for, for things like that, um, especially when it's just completely new functionality that gets added. You can often kind of fit it in uh, previously 
the interesting thing about this is that Apple's implementation is is a lot better in many ways. So on 10.6, you fall back to my implementation, you get a slower version with more overhead, but it still works. So trade-offs. Yeah, very useful. So yeah, something of a hobby of mine going back a long way. And uh, when Swift came out, it obviously came out with weak reference support from the beginning. And uh, it's brought along a completely different implementation of zeroing weak references from what Objective-C used, which was really interesting because mm -hmm. it's running on Apple stuff and they've got Objective-C, so why not use the same thing? But uh, I guess they saw the opportunity to improve. What were some of the uh, particular shortcomings of the Objective-C implementation? So the, the challenge with this stuff is getting that reference to become invalid in a reliable fashion, even mm -hmm. in a multi-threaded environment. So mm -hmm. you know, you've got an object which gets destroyed because the last strong reference goes away over here. And then over there, you've got something accessing a weak reference to it. And you got to make sure that when you access that weak reference, it either grabs the object before it gets destroyed, before that process even starts, or it returns nil. If it's you know a, a simple implementation could easily return a pointer to an object that's kind of in the process of being destroyed. And that's no good. So you've got to right. do some sort of synchronization and tracking to make sure that can't happen. So the way the Objective-C implementation works is it tracks every single weak reference to every object in the system in a big global table. And every time you load a weak reference, you basically acquire a lock and then look the object up in the table. And when the target of a weak reference gets destroyed, it acquires that same lock and zeroes out all these references. And so you've got some overhead there with all this locking that has to go on. And uh, you've got overhead from tracking all the references, and you could spend a substantial amount of time going through and zeroing out all of those weak references. So it's uh, it makes for a nice bolt-on addition because it's it's a global table, which means that you don't affect any object layout, right? And it can just be like a separate thing for the most part, and it works great. And there's there's nothing wrong with this approach, but just as far as the trade-offs go, you know, there's always different uh, pluses and minuses to this stuff. Yeah, back to the uh, the ABI stability stuff that JP was mentioning earlier. So if this implementation were to store this information in the object, then that would be an ABI incompatible change, thus the global table Yes, exactly. Uh, approach. So you could yeah. imagine that the object could have like a little space reserve to track all of the weak references. You know, it would hold an array or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you'd have to make sure that nothing was using that space, and that would mean shifting everything down, and that could break everything that uh, all the code out there that assumes that uh, it's that space is free and able to be used. So there's a lot of Objective C code out there that just assumes that the first chunk of an object is the class pointer, and everything after that is the instance variables. And if you start shoving stuff in the middle, it just goes all all uh, all sideways. Right. Right. So, how does um, how did the original uh, Swift weak reference implementation uh, work, and and what were some of the pitfalls with that? Yeah. So it was a it was a really clever solution, um, a lot simpler in many ways than the Objective C solution. So, in the world of Objective C, every object has a reference count. When the count goes to zero, the object gets destroyed, and uh, and that's it. And then when it gets destroyed, it zeroes out the weak references as as part of the destruction process. In Swift objects had two reference counts. They've got a weak reference count and a strong reference count. So the strong reference count is what keeps the object alive. 
but then separately it tracks the number of weak references and it only tracks the count. It doesn't actually have a big list of where they are. So when an object got destroyed, when the strong count went to zero, but the weak count was still there, what it would do is it go through and basically deinitialize the object. So it would go through and release all the stored properties and uh, do things like clear out associated objects and it would not actually deallocate the memory. So you'd still have the object's memory sitting there, but it was sort of like this empty husk. I call it a zombie in the article here. So existing weak references would still point to that zombie object. So the memory was still valid. It couldn't get reclaimed, but it was no longer a functional object. And then when you loaded a weak reference, it would check the object and see if it was a zombie object or not. If it was still alive, then it could return it to you. And if it had become a zombie, then it could just return nil to you. And uh, it would also take the opportunity when that happened, it would then zero out the reference you were reading so that eventually the zombie object could be destroyed entirely. And so what would determine if an object is a zombie or not? Is there some flag that's set or? Yes, I think um, it would basically just look at the retain counts. And if the strong retain count was zero, then the object Uh, was dead. Sure. Uh, Don't quote me on that exactly. I'd have to go look that up. Okay. Yeah, it was either that or a flag. Um, but basically, you've got all this stuff stuffed into the retain count field, which fits into a single pointer size chunk, so you can do atomic operations on it to make it thread safe. And so it would essentially try to increment the strong retain count. And if the object was already dead, it would notice that and give up. And if the object was still alive, then it would that would keep it alive so that the caller could use it reliably. You mentioned... Um this operation being atomic, but it wasn't necessarily thread safe. Is that correct? Yeah, there was a, there was a little bit of a hole in the implementation, basically. So the way the implementation worked is if you had multiple references, uh, if you had multiple threads looking up a weak reference, they would all they would all cooperate with each other fairly nicely. The, the use of atomic uh, instructions meant that one thread would complete, and then the next thread would complete, and they would all work together. But the implementation didn't quite work properly when the same thread or when multiple threads were looking up the same weak reference. So the exact same spot in memory that held that reference. And that was because of the zeroing behavior. So the implementation not only would try to retrieve the object and retain it, but if the object was in a zombie state, it would then zero out the pointer that it came from. And so now you're essentially modifying two pieces of memory at once. And doing that in an atomic way is a lot harder. And so they didn't quite get it right. And so if you had multiple threads accessing the same weak reference at the same time, there were cases where it could crash. And I don't know if anyone ever ran into this in the real world. When I was looking up the implementation, I kind of noticed this, wrote up a test case to reproduce it. It was actually pretty easy to make it happen if I was trying to, but I don't know how how, uh, much impact it really had. Well, it's the kind of thing that maybe uh, some apps experienced like very rarely, and then uh, developers just kind of never bothered to really look more into it since yeah, it was it's so rare. Like the uh, you know background radiation of your crashes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Now you you file this with bugged, and I I remember that uh, or you filed the Jira, I, sh- I should say to use the lingo, and this actually caused quite a bit of a stir um, where uh, the Swift folks at Apple quickly um, rushed to 
uh, to isolate the issue and, and to ultimately fix it. And w- what I find a little funny um, is that the the person who ended up fixing this, uh, Guillaume Lessard, is also the same person who uh, requested or suggested this topic for you in the Q&A. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I guess he's into weak references too. And uh, he said basically, as I, I kicked off this discussion and uh, participated in it to an extent, you know, helped suggest some po- uh, potential solutions. But, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, and I really wasn't um, familiar enough with the code to actually contribute, so I sort of dropped off. And uh, he decided that he was familiar enough, or he was going to become familiar enough, and so he actually went ahead and implemented uh, one of the proposed fixes um, after he saw that I had sort of given up on the idea. So that was that was really cool. And uh, then he, he lost track of it all, so after... Uh, he fixed it. Basically, he just patched it, essentially, took this original implementation and, and fixed it up so that it wouldn't crash anymore. And then later on, the Swift guys decided to use a whole different implementation, which he hadn't kept track of. So he emailed me and said, hey, you know, I, I did this fix and I've been following this. And uh, I heard there was a new implementation. I haven't checked it out. And it would be really cool if you could write this up. Yeah, but then uh, ultimately... The Swift folks still decided that uh, there could be some improvements to the implementation here, and they ended up going with an entirely different approach for Swift 4, right? Yeah. So with Swift 4, uh, objects can now have what they call a side table. So normally, an object is a single chunk of memory, and you've got some pieces of that memory reserved for various functions like the class pointer and the retain counts, and then the rest of it is, is your stored properties. But now with Swift 4, an object can actually be uh, two pieces of memory. So you've got the main object memory itself, and then you've got a side table, which is a separate allocation, which can store some extra stuff. So the idea is that objects have different needs in your memory. So your typical object in a program has no weak references. It has no associated objects. It doesn't have anything special going on. You know, it's just a a simple thing. But you do have objects which have all of those uh, special features. And you don't want to make every single object pay for that. So that's another reason why, for example, you don't stick the weak reference list in the object memory itself, because 99% of your objects are never going to use it and you're just wasting space. So what they did is they came up with the side table idea. So your typical run-of-the-mill standard object not doing anything special is just one chunk of memory. But when an object needs more, it can transform and allocate the second chunk of memory, which the original object will point to the side table, and the side table points back to the original object. So they're, they're conceptually linked, but the side table can grow and shrink and be its own thing and only incur costs for the objects that need it. And so what happens with... Uh, the new implementation is the side table has to exist for weak references. So the first time you form a weak reference to an object, it will create the side table for that object and link it together, set it all up for you. And then the weak reference actually refers to the side table, not the original object. And then when you look up the weak reference, what it does is it looks in the side table first, sees if the object is still alive, and then gives you the pointer to the original object. And this allows the original object to get destroyed and because the side table is known to be a fixed size and it's fairly small, they don't need to aggressively deallocate it once all the weak references have been touched. So they don't even try to zero out the weak references anymore, which gets rid of the whole uh, thread safety concern. And it also makes sure, like, if you have a giant object, you know, you could make an object with a million stored properties and it would take up, you know, eight megabytes of memory or whatever. And the side table takes up 16 bytes currently. So they know they're able to destroy that original object and it's they, you're not wasting eight megabytes of memory just to keep some weak references around. 
Right. And having this approach of a single side table for each object um, means that you're no longer using this uh, shared global table and locking on that whole table when you're performing atomic operations, right? It's isolated to those side tables. Yeah, it's, it's a great middle ground uh, between sticking it in straight in the object's memory and using a global table. So uh, every object has its own side table. There's a pointer straight from the object to the side table, so you don't need to do any global table lookups or anything like that. Uh, thread safety becomes way easier and faster. And uh, you get this cool separate area where you can put all sorts of cool things. So right now it's really just used for weak references, but um, the possibility is there to expand it for things like associated objects. Uh, I've heard talk about allowing stored properties and extensions for class types, which would probably go in the side table. So that would be a really cool feature that, that this could enable. And uh, it make weak, makes weak references work uh, very nicely and fast without the downsides of that global table and without the uh, problems of the earlier implementation. Would you happen to know if this side table, this uh, you say that it currently takes up 16 bytes, uh, if it's uh, extendable at all? So like for future versions of Swift, um, if they could do that, or maybe it's an ABI stability uh, decision that has or hasn't yet been made in the case that they would want to extend it for things like stored properties on extensions. Yeah, so the uh, the actual code that accesses the side table is in the runtime library. So I believe that for ABI stability, there is no requirement for the side table to remain constant because if they change the layout of the side table, they can update the runtime library along with it. So your own code does not directly touch the side table, which isolates it, I think, from ABI stability. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure that they would be able to add these things and Obviously, if you wrote code that took advantage of features which used additions to the side table, you would be you would have to use a newer runtime that could accommodate it. Uh, but older code that didn't use those features would still work on the new runtime. Yeah, this uh, for listeners. If you listen to the ABI stability episodes, this goes back to the uh, either determining things uh, at runtime uh, through some API or knowing them statically. Um, and that's kind of a big part of, uh, ABI stability and, and figuring out the, uh, memory layout. So in the case of weak references, there's a set of functions that get called uh, runtime functions. So every time you access a weak reference, uh, you end up calling something like uh, Swift underscore load weak or uh, uh, some name like that. And every time you store something in it, it's Swift underscore store weak. And so the details of how it works can change without impacting your code. So that wraps up the uh, ABI stability uh, question nicely. Yeah, and since Swift is all open, um, there's all sorts of uh, juicy comments that you can take a look at uh, in the implementation here. One that jumps out in the um, weak reference uh, header in the runtime is um, there's a section there about thread safety. And so it's now top of mind in the, in the considerations where uh, it outlines four different scenarios of... Um, different uh, thread safety in the face of readers with respect to concurrent readers, et cetera, um, and the specific cases in which thread safety is, is not uh, guaranteed or, or not even a goal. Um, so now it's, it's extremely well-defined. It seems like uh, the lessons were learned from the earlier Swift versions. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's really helpful to lay that stuff out because you have this intuitive notion of what operations should be thread safe and what operations should not be thread safe. And uh, I don't know if intuitive is the right word for such a complicated technical topic, but you, you know, you get the idea. And typically we think of things being thread safe as for simultaneous readers, but when writing, you need locks. And your typical stored property works that way. When you load a stored property, you can do that without any synchronization as long as there are only readers. And then the moment you involve a change, if you're mutating that stored property, then you have to get involved with locks or queues or other types of synchronization. And um, that, I think, was always the intent with the weak reference implementation. But I think maybe because it wasn't quite formalized, not entirely written down, um, they just missed the fact that it wasn't actually... Uh, 100% thread safe in the face of multiple readers. And uh, obviously, I'm not uh, trying to blame them in any way. It's just a really interesting way that it uh, played out in terms of what they attempted to do and how it ended up uh, happening. Yeah. And um, if memory serves, tools like ASAN and TSAN, so address sanitizer, thread sanitizer, were only really added um, to Swift uh, and the Swift implementation anyway, certainly after this initial implementation of the weak reference. And so maybe this is the kind of race condition that uh, would have been caught or, or almost unde- undefined behavior that would have been caught by by those tools, but uh, they hadn't been incorporated yet. Yeah, that could be. And But you, you also have a problem that uh, the sanitizers are runtime tools. And so they can only catch problems that you actually uh, make happen at runtime. So if your code has a bug, but you never exercise the bug, they won't catch it. And I'm not sure how much testing was done for uh, simultaneous reads of the same weak reference. It's it's a it's a weird. It's an edge case. It's um, doesn't immediately come to mind. Um, I'm not sure what made me notice it when I was looking through the code, but uh, just the luck of the draw, maybe. Um, what's uh, especially interesting here in the implementation, you mentioned, Mike, that um, usually. When you mention something is thread safe, it's thread safe in the face of multiple readers, um, but but not writers. Except that the way this is implemented, uh, there's a distinction distinction between um, writing arbitrary data to a weak reference versus zeroing it out, which is also a mutating operation, but is kind of handled um, very specifically in this implementation, so that uh, a zeroing operation can happen concurrently and still be thread safe. Yeah, that kind of gets back to the original bug, uh, which is essentially um, a difference between visible semantics and what's going on under the hood. So in terms of the way a weak reference gets used in Swift code, uh, it doesn't look like it gets mutated. It's um, You just read it, and it doesn't look like there's a mutation op- operation going on, so it feels like it should be thread safe. And then when you dig into the underlying implementation, there's actually mutation going on underneath to make all of this stuff happen, which isn't visible in the Swift code. And that that mismatch between the two sides, I think, was, was sort of the root cause of this. It, when you look at it from one aspect, it looks one way. And when you look at it from another side, it looks different. And you've got to realize that they don't quite match up, which is tough. Uh, so uh, one last question that I have is uh, how does how do unowned references play into all of this? Are those also tracked separately, or are they weak references with a flag set? Or 
So back in the old implementation, unowned references worked exactly like uh, weak references, and the only difference was the way that they were loaded, um, just the code that actually worked with them. So essentially, unowned was like weak with an implicit exclamation, park, uh, exclamation mark on the end. And so if you, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. An unowned reference is a weak reference that crashes instead of giving you nil. In the new implementation, I did not actually dig in too much on the unowned side, but there is a separate unowned reference count. So they're definitely doing something a little different in this respect, a little more tricky. I'm not 100% sure why, but no doubt there are very good reasons for it. So there's there's an explicit unowned reference count. Yeah, so now Swift objects have three reference counts. You've got strong, weak, and unowned all kind of crammed in together. That I, I find that extremely surprising. <laughs> yeah, you know, now that you mention it, maybe I should uh, my my next article should follow up and hey, what's the deal with unknown now? This is weird. Yeah, well, that was the purpose of the show was just to give you you know more work, really. Right. Well, you know, I, I try to write these every two weeks, regardless. You're not really giving me a war work. You're giving me inspiration, which is always handy. Yeah, consider this a uh, a request right. for the next Q and A. Uh, this this reminds me actually a while back on Twitter, I was having a discussion with Joe Groff and something came up about reference counts, uh, and he said which one, <laughs> and I was like, at the time I thought there was only one reference count, uh, but then yeah, uh, now there are three. Well, the number of reference counts is the Swift version minus one, right? <laughs> it just keeps adding another one at every year. Well, I'm afraid that's only a recent phenomenon. You know, it was two even back in like Swift one. So it's, uh, we, we've got a little trouble fitting this curve, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it'll straighten out now. Do you know when uh, these changes to the weak references landed? Was that in Swift 3 or Swift 4? So Swift 3 had the old implementation with the thread safe fix. And then Swift 4 got the uh, new implementation with the side table. Okay, so Swift 4 is the thread safe edition. Well, th- Swift 3 is safe as well, but Swift 4 is the new hotness, fancy ah, stuff. Right. Awesome. It's, it's thread safe in a different way. Yeah. Yes, differently thread safe, um, less wasteful of memory, Opens the door for new possibilities, all that stuff. Thread safe 2.0. Yes. Thread safer. <laughs> yeah. Next year we'll have thread safest yes. with concurrency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then after that, maybe we'll start over and we can have bugs again. Hooray. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, anything else, Mike, that you want to share with us uh, while you're on the air? Um, if I may, I'd just like to point out that uh, we offer training solutions for your listeners. If they like listening to me or at least don't find it too objectionable, you might want to check that out at uh, plausible.coop slash training. And uh, you can get me to come in and do sort of like a podcast, except it's all day and in person and it doesn't get broadcast and it's not really like a podcast at all, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah. Straight to your ears. Skip the middleman. Um, yes, exactly. Otherwise, uh, where else can people find you, Mike? So I'm at mikeash.com, and there's a link to my blog on there. And uh, I occasionally write articles for the Plausible blog as well. So that's plausible.coop slash blog. And I'm on Twitter at mikeash, uh, GitHub also at mikeash. You may not find too much useful stuff on GitHub, but I've got a lot of frightening and weird and scary stuff on GitHub. So that's mm-hmm. almost as good. All right. Well, you can find me at simjp on Twitter. The show is at swift underscore unwrapped. And you can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. Uh, Thanks again, Mike, for coming on. We really appreciate it. It's been awesome. It's my pleasure. It's always fun to talk about this crazy stuff. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.